Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. This week, we bring on a longtime friend, Getty Hill. Getty is a very active governance participant and is one of the, dare I say, crypto industry's foremost experts on governance and has been a very active contributor to many different DeFi protocols. This week's focus of the podcast is the Uniswap fee switch. And this is something that a lot of people have opinions on, whether AMMs and other DeFi protocols should be actively turning on fees. And if so, really, how should they be spending it? And what's the most effective way to balance sort of value accrual and fee switches versus longer term objectives and longer term growth? And this week's podcast would really be diving into that and figuring out what the right balance is. If it does make sense to turn the fee switch on, how to do it. So yeah, super excited to have Getty in addition to my co-founder, Reverie Larry. Should be a super fascinating discussion. I think to kick things off, Getty, do you want to give a quick intro about yourself and talk a bit about what the fee switch is? Thanks, guys, for having me. Always fun to talk about Uniswap and governance in general. For a little context, for the listeners, myself and GFX Labs have done four successful Uniswap governance proposals, most notably the one basis point fee pool that we've added to the protocol, in addition to some of our core products that we're developing at GFX Labs, like Poppy and Etherlands. When it comes to thinking about the fee switch, though, which has been something now in discussion for at least two years since Uniswap V2 launched, and increasingly so in recent time in V3 with the new system, it's become a bit of a hot topic to think about and talk about and how it might look like and what it might work by. For those who are familiar with the fee switch already and those who aren't, it exists on V2 and has existed on V2 since its inception, but it has never been activated. And if it were to be activated, it would accrue instead of the 30 basis point pools that exist there the protocol will collect five and the LPs will collect 25 in the V2 system, which is actually currently activated on SushiSwap, where the V3 system is a lot more complicated and gives a lot more control to governance and how they want to tailor fees opposed to just a single Boolean on-off switch. Super helpful explanation. Yeah, I think something people don't even realize that for V2 and V3, it's like entirely separate fee switches and separate processes in terms of activating it and what the fee switch can even be. To jump right into it, how do you feel about the fee switch? If it was up to you, what would you do? That's the hottest question, I suppose. When it comes to the fee switch in general, and maybe even more holistically, the uni token that exists, the Uniswap token holders and its governance participants, we play a role in the protocol to help guide the existing state of the protocol and manage that and its parameters, whether that be the fee tiers, the tick sizes that you can change within those fee tiers, actual fees that we could accrue on all these things if we so chose to, and then just general protocol innovation, other external things to the existing protocol. What about Uniswap v4 someday, et cetera, et cetera. I think something that most people assume is going to happen someday, and I certainly hope will happen someday, is the speech which gets turned on. Ultimately, the protocols, whether it be Uniswap or others, do need to think about their plan in the long run to accruing some type of revenue or some type of income stream somehow back to the DAO. And the fee switch has been quite thoughtfully already iterated on once since V2 into V3 now. And it really exists at this point for the community to develop tooling and standards around actually utilizing it. 
there's a lot of work to be done on all fronts and actually putting the V3 switch into place and turning that on and tailoring it to where it is a productive tool and not actually limiting the protocol's liquidity and costing it users to go to other protocols. But I think it's ultimately the most important part of this puzzle. And if the protocol can start on it sooner, the better. And that'll ultimately give us a lead beyond other protocols that come to compete with Uniswap V3. It's really fun to just take a step back and think about the fee switch as the business model for the protocol. It's the fees that protocols could take, in this case, Uniswap could take for providing a really valuable product to the market. And the fee switch debate for Uniswap, what's interesting to me is because Uniswap is such a beloved product and brand, it's gotten so much attention on the fee switch and the business model. One argument that I've seen people make against turning fees on, obviously turning fees on is money for the protocol. So that's the pro. The anti-argument would be something like, hey guys, if we don't turn the fee switch on, we can continue growing market share for the next five to 10 years and drive our competitors out of business because maybe their fees are higher. So we'll get more customers. And then once we have maybe majority market share or close to it, then five, 10 years later, we can turn this fee switch on. And so this is sort of a market share game for the people who are against turning fees on. Just kind of curious how you guys feel about that argument. I think if we run with that argument, then we'll never turn it on because we'll never reach proper consensus to like how much market share is enough market share. And given the openness and essentially leaderless version of the DAO that it exists, we won't reach consensus on that. My thought is, is there's a significant number of users and capital throwing through the protocol today. A significant amount of fees already be collected, collecting by the LP token holders who participate. I think everyone who utilizes the protocol in one facet, whether they're providing liquidity as a market maker on the protocol or a user swapping tokens through the protocol, recognize, hey, I'm utilizing some function of a service here. There's some price I'm willing to pay it's certainly greater than zero for the vast majority of users. So my thought is, okay, well, it's going to be a non-trivial process to actually develop the infrastructure to have a productive system to even implement the fees and then manage the fees thereof in an effective manner for the protocol that actually is conducive to growth and innovation, that we should start this like sooner, sooner opposed later, because ultimately it's something everyone's going to start working on. We've only begun to see it with SushiSwap and like a little bit with MakerDAO and that MakerDAO does their buyback and SushiSwap has the fee switch on for their V2, which is just Uniswap and they buy back Sushi. I think it's better to start sooner opposed later. You mentioned setting up that infrastructure for taking fees in the first place. I think actually that's something we can talk about in a little bit more depth because I think a lot of people think that, oh, hey, fees are super easy to turn on. You just turn it on and a protocol makes money. But under the hood, it's way more complicated than that. Do you think you can walk us through what it actually means to turn fees on for V3 and then V2? I'm going to go backwards from the order there. And just because V2 is significantly simpler than what exists in V3 and is also familiar for the users who are used to SushiSwap and what system they have. It's just Uniswap's protocol. <laughs> Essentially, what happens here is there is an address that can be configured as like the fee to parameter by governance. By default, this parameter is set to just like the zero address. There's nothing specified here. And whenever someone goes in to use the protocol, it checks to see, hey, does this address like has it been configured yet? If it's anything other than zero address, then cool. That's the quote unquote fee switch that is now on and it's agreeing fees to this LP token holder. And so essentially the protocol now has an LP share 
in the pool themselves in Uniswap V2 that then can be claimed. What's neat is the claim system, unlike V3, is able to claim to anyone. So anyone can call the claim function because it's just a matter of paying gas. They don't actually get that money. It just goes to a defined destination where, in theory, governance has set up a contract to actually manage unwrapping the LP token into its underlying assets and then doing whatever we want with the underlying assets, whether that be implementing some type of Dutch auction system to sell whatever weird altcoins the protocol is earning for ETH and then buying uni or just holding ETH or building a diversified treasury. It's a separate topic as to what we'll do with the funds, but nonetheless, there's definitely something everyone was going to want to do something with those funds. So we'll need a system to actually unwrap those random altcoins into something, some type of like safe haven or expected asset, and then go from there. Now, when it comes to V3, the general premise of what I described is still there, but it's a little more complicated on the front of how it's actually implemented. So instead of V2, where it's just a Boolean fee switch, the protocol starts collecting five bips of protocol swap fees, five bips of the prior 30. So LPs get 25, protocol gets five. In the V3 system, you specify fees on a pool by pool basis. And that's even more granular on the point of it can be the ETH USDC pool, the 30 BIP, the 1%, the 5 BIP, and the 1 BIP. So you have to configure the fee for every single pool. And you configure this one time. The admin, so in this case, the time lock actually has to be the one calling these contracts and configuring the fee, which means it requires a governance proposal for every single Uniswap pool that exists today and any ones that might exist in the future. So the protocol will have to go back and occasionally batch together a bunch of updates for these pools. And then once more beyond that, once the pool actually starts, assuming we choose a fee, and it can be a fee anywhere between a quarter, 25%, or 10% of whatever the protocol fees are being collected there. Well, the fees being collected there, if the LPs, the protocol can begin to collect. When it comes then to actually claim these fees that is being just accrued in the contracts and these pools, it's a bit of a mess in the sense that you have to claim, and that once again, it's an admin call that has to be claimed from the time clock, so it's another governance proposal. And then we have to, then you can send those to anywhere. So then at that point, now we're out and like we've got our cash from the protocol. Now we can put this to use similarly back to V2. So in both systems, we need some type of system to actually manage the things that the protocol is earning, whatever altcoins, ETH, or UCC that we're earning there. But how you actually implement the fees, how you claim the fees is different on each protocol. There's some precedent in this that we can go see for V2 on SushiSwap and how they do it. But generally speaking, it's going to be relatively a new problem for the protocol to manage and think about, especially when it comes to respects of by no means can we have any type of centralized party or centralized individual or anything that can be construed as centralized, controlling or directing this process whatsoever. So it's a lot of hoops to jump through. Long answer. Sorry about that. No worries. I think that is a good question. And it's an open question. Like, if, like, aside from just the yes no question of should we turn fees on, you have to really think about if so, how should they be managed? Who should be managing it? And sort of what is the next steps? I don't necessarily think that all of these things need to be answered or included as part of like, the initial proposal of should v 2 or V3 turn fees on. But I do think that whoever creates this and whatever proposal ends up happening, if it does, does need to like lay out some of this thinking and some of these, at least how these people can think about this so that it isn't just like 
sort of being done on an ad hoc basis. My next question would be like, aside from the obvious benefits of turning a fee on, like, great, the protocol is now earning some revenue and people can think of it as some sort of like cash flow machine. What do you see as some of the second order benefits of having a fee switch on? Like maybe that's it makes the protocol and the community more comfortable with spending funds on growth initiatives or something like that. Getty, I don't know if you had any, Getty or Larry, if either of you had any thoughts about this. I think the second order effects will be massive throughout DeFi in general and the other protocols that are generally look up to Uniswap as a best practice in, in many ways and say, hey, they found a way to do this. Even if it's not accruing a ton of fees of the protocol, it's the infrastructure and it's the actual formula that is used, that is implemented here in the present that is set by such a thing occurring. So I think in that sense, for the entirety of DeFi, it'll be like a pretty great thing to see happen. When it comes to Uniswap specifically, I think it'll give the protocol something to unify around. There's going to be a lot of work in actually managing these pools and directing the system. And luckily, it's rather traditional problem once we get past the just initial groundwork needs to be done. And I think it'll really, especially when we bring to the thought that there's a whole cross protocol and all the other deployments that we have to manage. There's some actually really interesting problems that the protocol gets to solve once we start doing this. I couldn't agree more with Getty. I mean, to simplify it, it would be the equivalent of an exchange that is not charging fees, like a centralized exchange that is not charging fees, all of a sudden charging its users fees, and then figuring out what to do with all that money. You could imagine cases where mergers and acquisitions are all of a sudden on the table because there's money in the treasury from the fees, or Derek, you mentioned like marketing and sort of growth initiatives. There's a lot of really cool things you can do once the treasury is filled up and once the piggy bank has some money in it. And it definitely, I think, will set precedent for other protocols who are not charging fees today to say, oh, if Uniswap is doing it, maybe we can too. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think everyone recognizes that people are getting a service here by using Uniswap. Like I'll happily pay a fee to the protocol. And if I was an LP or in the protocol, I would happily pay some fee to the protocol. I don't think anyone will disagree on that front. It's just a matter of like what that number is. But hey, like start off small and like go up. It doesn't need to be come out swinging out of the gates. But just the fact that anything will exist will be a really big deal. In terms of putting, like if you're the CEO of Uniswap and you had unilateral power Getty, how would you go about turning fees on? Would it be a gradual thing, pool by pool and seeing how it works? Or would you just turn it on for all the pairs on Uniswap? I think there's a few different ways we can go about doing this. One thought I've had that I think could be really good is this notion of that we can use some of our non-mainnet deployments as a, a testing ground for some of the more out there ideas, such as like enabling the fee switch and managing it, and where there's not necessarily the same cost of the protocol that if we do something unideal. And for that sense, like the protocol regularly does billions of dollars of volume a day right now. Whereas if we go on to Polygon, Arbitrum, or Optimism, one of the even newer deployments, the stakes are much lower. So we can actually implement these things there in a more controlled environment, one that we can examine a bit more in depth. And I think that is like, in my mind, the, the safest way to like slowly build this up, use one of those other deployments, develop the system there, get it working on a very small scale, get it where the infrastructure is working, get it where the governance actually understands how to manage this thing, that you have the base tooling, that you have some type of base deployment to reference it on, and then go to mainnet. Because really, once we get to mainnet, like we want to minimize having to make any last minute changes because 
everything is extremely costly in mainnet. And in many cases, undoing this stuff is either impossible or extremely difficult, especially in the sense that unlike a lot of modern DeFi protocols, well, that's not to say Uniswap isn't modern, but there's no proxies, there's no upgradable functionalities here. There's no going back in a lot of circumstances. So I think you start with third-party deployments, you work your way up, you start off by specifying some of the like the more simple pools, the ETH, USDC variants and ETH stablecoin, wrap Bitcoin, et cetera. And then you just start worrying about like the altcoins that, in fact, something like Ape that's collecting actually a bunch of fees for the protocol. And they, hey, now all of a sudden you have a bunch of Ape to manage and you have to manage just the same way you would manage any other altcoin and so on and so forth. So it's super clear that to reiterate what we've been talking about, like this is not anywhere close to a one-off proposal. There's a huge amount of work that goes into R&D and testing before the switch is turned on to understand it and to get to know the best process. And then assuming it does pass, like there's an even greater amount of work that goes into monitoring and figuring out what to do with the fees and potentially deploying them. And this is just an open question to anyone. What is the ideal setup for who works on this? It sounds like something that needs a whole team of people with different skill sets and backgrounds, not one single person. Can this be solved with like a fee working group? I know there was like a discussion on Uniswap a few weeks ago about like a fee research organization. Like, does this need like a few different startups to work on? Who and how can actually make this happen? Uniswap grants or someone filling a similar role is going to have to write a really large check to someone. This is ultimately like a massive undertaking for what can probably be a small group of people who have an extreme amount of knowledge on the protocol and what best practices are when it comes to auctions and trading and AMMs in particular. But between the fact that we're going to be like, whoever's going to do this is going to have to come up with some custom contracts that are need to be audited that are going to have likely a lot of risk associated with them initially and a lot of funds flowing through them. It's going to be a process, a long-term process, something of, you know, on the scale of like, hey, this is going to be a six, nine-month endeavor at minimum to go from the first check is written until there is actually like a solid deliverable for the protocol to feel like great about. Because it's going to entail a lot of research, a lot of development, a lot of safety work and ensuring that it actually like functions properly and a lot of expertise from you know a solid group of people, not to mention there's the huge governance side of this. So putting aside all the actual technical work that's going to have to go into this to actually implement it, there's actual work of like, hey, the only way you're going to get this implemented is if you reach that 40 million unicorn. And that means you're going to have to convince 40 million worth of uni that you have a good idea and you have a good specification and implementation how to do this. And that's no small task by any means, especially when we're talking about something as controversial as the fee switch. So I imagine that once the ball gets rolling, whoever picks up this torch, whoever has the incentive to do such a thing, it's going to be a matter of going through multiple iterations. I wouldn't be surprised if the first one or two or three governance proposals where they come up with an implementation gets shot down and they have to go back to the drawing board. And it's not going to be shown as, hey, you failed. This is a bad idea. It's going to be, we need to refine this some more and you're going to be held to a probably higher and constantly moving standard. So it's going to be a huge undertaking for whoever is going to work on it. Couldn't agree more. And I think something we've run into, particularly when it comes to protocol fees, is the unsexy stuff like who pays the taxes. In this case, if you're 
a tax authority, you look at the protocol making money, all of a sudden you're going to want some of that money because it's a profit for the protocol. And that's, of course, taxable and under the lens of tax authorities. And so thinking through the legal, the accounting and operational headaches of what goes into turning on the fees and who potentially pays taxes, that's like another potential bottleneck that I don't think really people think about today. No, I think people just figure if they write a forum post to turn on the fee switch and then it gets enough like upvotes that it'll just magically occur. There's some like elves behind the curtain who are just like working on it. Governance elves. Governance elves. It's actually Element Finance's mascot is elves. So that should be the name for this podcast, Governance Elves. Governance Elves. That is something that we all talk about and I guess more accurate to say sort of rant about is I think people don't realize that a lot of proposals, especially the community facing ones, such as the fee switch that require a large amount of feedback and ongoing maintenance and community communication, like that is a whole separate job in and of itself, in addition to the proposal itself. Like in our last podcast about sort of beat a DAO with Gauntlet, like we talked about how going through governance and getting a contract and talking to people about your work takes months. One proposal is minimum one month, probably closer to two months of work. Imagine that, but for the proposals like a fee switch, like it never ends, essentially. It needs to be done on an ongoing basis. You're, again, like in charge of tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of monitoring cash flows and seeing what to do with them and just keeping an eye on it, really. It really is a lot of work and a full-time job. When I did the Price Oracle at Compound, when we started off that initiative after the die November 2020 incident, I never expected it to take as long as it did, let alone the amount of work on the tactical front, the governance front, the community front. It was just ended up being from start to finish about a seven, six month process of convincing the community, getting the technical implementation correct as we went through like three iterations. It was just a huge work. I did that all as like, quote unquote, like, I don't know, like part-time job while I was still at the trading firm doing this. And it was like the fun side project that over time I was like, damn, I'm not getting paid enough to do this, but it was at least fun way. And as a heavy compound user, it it didn't mind too much. This fee switch is going to be at least a few times more difficult than what that price oracle was. Changing topics a little bit. Let's assume that we are able to tackle this question of should fees be turned on and the community thinks yes, and there is a good plan and there's a strategy. Let's say fees are turned on, the proposal passes, day one, money starts coming into the protocol treasury. How do you guys think those funds should be managed and deployed? Because there's many different approaches. There's the maker style buy and burn. There's lots of folks implementing the staking models that also return capital more directly to stakers and token holders. Or you could just do nothing, which is arguably also a fine approach and just letting fees accumulate in the treasury and letting it grow and sort of having it be a calling card towards top teams and individuals to apply for grants or ask for funding. Like that's another option. Might be others as well. So curious how you guys think about this. I think getting the funds into the protocol and then just having them sit there would be like a real disappointment. I think the protocol needs like choose attack. If you were operating a company and you were getting paid 
a bunch of like random physical assets. You wouldn't just like leave them lying around being like, I don't know, I'll figure out something to do with them someday. Maybe I'll try to like sell them or whatever. In my mind, the protocol really has like two choices. Either it can go the route of let's sell these assets and buy uni. They can run like a Dutch auction or just use the open market. Probably a Dutch auction for the governance standpoint. Here's what will make the most sense and actually convert its altcoin holdings or whatever holdings it has by uni and just hold the uni. I think that is like a perfectly respectable way to go about utilizing the funds here. The other perfectly fine answer would be, let's just convert it to like stable coins and just build up a stable coin treasury. And then we can decide at a later date to do that. What I don't want to see is just the assets sitting there or being like, hey, we should like invest in other protocols. In my mind, it's invest in yourself or hedge like your downside, one of the two. It's a really difficult problem for companies and protocols included of what to do with the money they have. And it certainly is a champagne problem, but figuring out what to spend money on in this world is usually like a problem of ROI analysis. Like if you have a hundred different things you can invest in, hopefully you can stack rank those things by highest to lowest ROI and deploy as much money to the high ROI thing first. And I think for Uniswap's case, one thing the community could be thinking about once they've got some money in the treasury from the fees is what are the highest impact things that Uniswap could invest in? And to Getty's point, sometimes that could be investing in the protocol. So that could be like acquiring a wallet or something like that, or growing users through marketing. That could really make a meaningful impact to Uniswap's value. And if you're out of ideas, what companies typically do is they do buybacks or dividends. And that way, existing owners of the company can own a little bit more after the buyback is over. And that's certainly something Uniswap could be doing if it's out of ideas and how to reinvest in itself. But that analysis of comparing the investment universe and coming up with the expected ROI on what to do with the money, that is a really hard analysis and really difficult for just a random community member to do themselves. So it definitely will require some sort of committee or some type of joint effort between individuals. I mean, I do think that it's like these questions don't have to be all answered to the maximum, ex to the full extent off the bat. I think it's okay to talk about fees, especially for V2, where it is a bit simpler, have a few different ways they could be utilized and pick one option or pick one or two paths among that over the coming weeks or over the coming months. Otherwise, I feel like if you try and batch together all of these different decisions into one proposal, should the fees be turned on? Here's how we plan on using them. Here's how we measure them. It just could become a beast of a proposal, which is maybe what it takes if you want to be thorough. But I feel like if you're trying to get momentum around the fee switch as an idea, it's more important to implement it and maybe trial it on a small scale and sort of lay out the options and pick a path down the line. I totally agree. I think breaking it down into digestible parts for both the contributors who are doing the work and for the community to actually vote on their work is like really key to actually getting anything across the finish line here. So in either version of what I've talked about so far, we need something that will get the altcoins that the protocol is collecting, the assets the protocol is collecting into some other asset that the protocol wants to get, whether that be uni, stable coins, et cetera. And in my mind, that's like 
a piece of infrastructure that's going to have to exist rather if it's v2 or if it's v3 so i think that's where like the protocol should start is building that piece of infrastructure putting that in either on a v2 or on one of the v3 deployments but probably v2 since it's a lot easier to handle than v3 initially and then once we have some data there once it's been tested and put to use at least once there then you can start working on the more complicated part or not necessarily more complicated but the other part of the puzzle of setting the actual fees up on all the pools that exist and claiming it on v3 after we've done it on v2 makes sense just to go back to something we talked about earlier which is like how this will really change the identity of uniswap and just affect the broader DeFi ecosystem because if you guys go back to 2020 DeFi summer there was a lot of folks doing fundamental traditional analysis of these DeFi protocols, analyzing them as cash flow machines. And in almost every single case, these were all purely hypothetical. If fees are turned on, here's what could happen. And sort of a bunch of different assumptions. Of course, there's exceptions, like MakerDAO is one of them, DYDX, Yearn, Curve, Sushi, obviously. So like, there are many protocols doing this now, but I think most still aren't. And Uniswap would obviously I think send a very strong signal sort of if it was done, but a few people have written about this, but many people think of Uniswap as this public good that the fact that they aren't taking fees and still sort of the dominant spot decentralized exchange, like it just goes to show the power of what they perceive to be like community goodwill, like brand. And that's how you build a moat really not, sort of through reinvesting cash flows. And I think it would be a large change and it would be very precedent setting to move past that and to acknowledge the reality of, hey, maybe we do need to turn this into a cash flow machine. Maybe we do need to get people to understand that it's not all or nothing. It's not binary. You can turn on some small amount of fees without sort of sacrificing the long-term network effects and long-term growth. Like it's not binary. So I think... It's a very important mental thing to consider. And I think that is honestly the biggest debate in all of this. Yeah, One way to think about turning fees on is to ask the question, is my product so valuable that people are willing to pay for it? And if we turn on the fees at Uniswap and other protocols potentially, and people still use it, that's just a testament to the product quality. And just running those experiments and asking those questions, it could only serve to get a better sense of what the market thinks about the product. One question I want to ask you, Getty, about this is sort of how the fee switch relates to your previous proposal, you and Alex Kroger, to add a one BIP fee to UniV3. There's a few different fee options, and you guys proposed about a few months ago to add this one BIP option. And if you take a look at some of the data, Adding the one bit option for stable coin pool is like massively helpful in driving adoption and growth for Uni V3 compared to Curve and some other competitors. But the absolute amount of fee revenue that's being generated is actually like smaller because this one bit option is lower than what was available before. That decision ultimately was also a question of long-term growth versus short-term fees. And I don't think it's a pure apples to apples comparison, but it does sort of all come back to this same theme of like balancing growth versus value accrual. So not sure if you had any thoughts there. 
when it came to that proposal, in my mind, it was rather obvious that fees always converge to zero as like our general markets do. Markets will get more and more efficient over time and curve into all their protocols and demonstrated that there was a significant number of individuals and capital interested in going about these assets that were very close in value to one another. And Uniswap is extremely well positioned to like go after this market, but with its original configured pools with five basis points being the minimum threshold, like that just wasn't going to cut it. I mean, I spent a decent amount of time looking at stable coins and being very familiar with stable coin markets when I was at Grapefruit Trading. And like five basis points is a lot when we're talking about trading like in and out of like Tether or some other stable coins. So just it was irrealistic for the protocol to ever capture that chunk of the market share. And ultimately, what I think the driving decision here was is that if these are going to converge towards zero and just everything's going to get lower in general and more efficient, you'd rather be the person leading that charge rather than following the rest of the market. And I think ultimately, Uniswap governance came to that same opinion of like, let's go out there, we're going to dominate market share and really like push Uniswap into this market of being the predominant place to trade stable coins on chain and just assets we feel like very close value parity with one another. I do think from that respect, it's a little different. We're now talking about the fee switch and we're quite literally saying we're going to introduce more costs to all the users in the protocol. But with that said, I think everyone's willing to pay some number to utilize the protocol and they realize that this isn't like a public good, like it perhaps was once perceived as. And realistically, the only way for Uniswap to continue to dominate is to have some type of revenue and start to actually pay for it and innovating the protocol. Otherwise, there won't be a Uniswap V4 or subsequently, or there's certainly enough money in the treasury that there could be a V4, but it would help if the protocol could demonstrate some actual utility to the token holders. The game theory of turning fees on could be fun too, where you can imagine a world where if the fees are turned on, then competitors are like, oh, okay, well, we can turn on fees now too. But you could also see a world where competitors are like, oh, this is our chance to steal market share from Uniswap and turn fees down to zero and see what happens. I think it's almost the opposite way. In this respect, when we talk about like Uniswap leading the charge on like the one basis point pool, Uniswap is a bit of a laggard when it comes to the markets. I mean, Curve already has a strong concept of accruing fees and incentives to Curve holders in addition to SushiSwap and MakerDAO has this. It's not entirely a new thing to be talking about. And I think there's plenty of room in there for the protocol to get a little chunk of change for itself. Super interesting. I think we've covered a lot of ground today. I think it's very clear from talking to both of you that this is a pretty big project and it's not as simple as yes or no, should the fees be turned on? You really have to consider like second order effects, how you want the fees to be used and, and having a concrete plan. And it's probably not a good idea to just turn fees on and not do anything. I'm pretty excited to see how this conversation develops over the coming weeks, coming months. Seems like there's been a bit more momentum and chatter on the Uniswap forums already about this. And people are more interested in making a serious push around this. So pretty excited to follow this discussion and see how it develops.